Well, good morning, uh, Christ Central. Uh, my name is, as Evan said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Grateful to be with you on this rainy day. Again, happy Father's Day, those of you. Uh, this morning we are continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, entitled That You May Know. Uh, at this time I'd like to invite you, if you are able, to stand, as is our custom here at Christ Central for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 2, reading down through verse 14. This is God's Word. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your your wages. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak your truth to us, your people, this morning that we would be open and receptive to whatever it is that you have for us on this day. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to begin by asking you to think back to a time when you got the opportunity to meet someone really special. Maybe it was a celebrity or an athlete or a famous author, well-known scholar. But think about the excitement and the anticipation that you felt leading up to that meeting. How maybe for days, maybe weeks, maybe even months, this meeting consumed your thoughts and filled you with excitement and wonder. Now, I want you to think about what it looked like for you to get ready for that meeting. Did you buy a new outfit? Did you 
get a fresh haircut? If this person was coming to your house, did you spend hours cleaning up and decorating your house? Or, or maybe you studied up on this person so that you would know what to talk about, so that you might sound educated and informed. I'll never forget when we were going as a family to Disney World and one of my children was just out of her mind excited because she was going to meet the Princess Elena of Avalar, which for those of you who don't have little girls, she's a relatively new Disney princess. And this encounter for my daughter, it just consumed her life. She had to get ready for this moment that she had waited for for four or five years, however old she was at the time. And she wanted to make sure that her hair was right and that we were on time to the park, that we didn't miss this meeting. But the most important thing of all was she had to have the perfect outfit for this meeting. In order to meet Princess Elena, we needed an Elena dress, an Elena scepter, and of course, some Elena shoes. Now let me tell you about these shoes The Elena shoes are bright red, they're covered in jewels, and like most princess shoes, they are high heels. I should also point out we did not buy these shoes from the Disney store, which I think had something to do with why the quality was maybe not what we had expected. We found these bad boys on Amazon, and I can confidently say that they did not deserve the uh, three and a half stars that they received. (laughs) These shoes were so cheap that my feet hurt just looking at them. I could not fathom putting them on and walking around in them, but we did. Oh, we did. All day long, we walked around the theme park in the cheapest pair of Elena shoes that money could buy, but without a peep, not even a comment, because we had to be ready. We simply could not meet Elena and not be wearing the shoes. So the time finally comes and the parade comes by and we get to the spot way too early and we're waiting in the Florida heat and waiting and waiting and the parade starts to roll down. If you've been to Disney, you can kind of go there with me for a moment. Here comes the princess float and all the princesses are on this one float and, and there she is, Princess Elena. But she is on the other side of the float. So I began to panic. We're on the wrong side of the road. I've messed up. We're going to miss this moment. And I began to screaming, Elena, Elena, over here. <laughs> but she's not seeing us. But thank God for Jasmine. Amen. Thank God for Jasmine who kind of bumps her on the shoulder and she turns her gaze. And, and, and there Elena looks. And my daughter and Elena, they make eye contact. Elena has this big smile on her face. She waves at my daughter. And then, I'm not making this up, she, she makes a heart symbol on her chest. And she, she mouths to my daughter, I love you. <laughs> and you're about to see a grown man cry. I mean, in that moment, all the credit card debt seemed worth it. It was just, it was perfect. Um, but the point of that story is that my daughter, she was ready. She was ready to meet in her mind the most important person in the world. And her readiness paid off. What a beautiful moment. Our text this morning is all about getting ready. Not to meet a princess, but to meet a king. To meet King Jesus. And in order to kind of wrap our mind around this subject of readiness, I want to begin by unpacking a little bit of the cultural context that's at play here. You see, in the backdrop of our text is this 
very common ancient Near Eastern experience. It's this practice of kings going out and visiting their subjects. They would travel around and meet their people, similar to what you've maybe seen uh, the British royals do in the show The Crown. Now, what you probably don't know is that each town that the, the king would visit was expected to prepare to build a road for the king to approach on. And no ordinary road. It'd have to be a well-constructed, fancy road so that the king could have this, this pomp and dignity on his way into the city. Maybe not too dissimilar to like a city preparing for the Olympics. And the last thing to note here is that before the king would arrive... In order to make sure the city was ready, the king would always send a messenger ahead to herald the news of his coming. So this was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. Now what's fascinating about this is that we see in Isaiah chapter 40 that the prophet took this well-known custom and he turned it into a prophecy. And that's what we're seeing here quoted. This is uh, Isaiah's prophecy quoted here in Luke verses 4 6. And so I'm going to read the prophecy again in light of the context that I just shared. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. How do you hear it now in light of what we just said? The prophet is telling us that, that one day a king will ride into town, but this is no ordinary king. Instead of the townspeople building the road for this king, no, this king, he has the earth. The creation is going to build this road for the king to ride in on. Valleys are filled, mountains are made low in order to make this worthy path for the king of kings, the king of the universe to come in. And what we see here is that God has selected John the Baptist to be the herald. To go before this king and make sure that everyone is ready for his arrival. And so this morning I charge you, I want to charge you and myself to listen to the words of the herald. And the task for us today is to examine our own hearts and to see if we in fact are ready for the arrival of King Jesus. I want you to allow the prophet's words to push on you, to ponder what are the mountains in your life that need to be made low? What are the valleys that need to be filled up in order to ready you to meet the king? What are the obstacles in your heart that need to be leveled in preparation for God's arrival? Our text divides this readiness conversation into two parts. What does readiness look like on the inside and what does readiness look like on the outside? So let's look first at readiness on the inside. Now remember, John the Baptist, he's the herald. And he was, verse 3, wandering around in the region of the Jordan, calling to whomever would listen to get ready. Get ready for the arrival of the king. And for John, to get ready meant something very specific. There was a practice that needed to happen in order to ready one for the arrival of Jesus. And that practice was called baptism. Now, once again, we need a little bit of background to understand what John is saying because prior to the coming of Christ, baptism looked very different than it did today. Before Christ, baptisms were reserved only for Gentiles, people of non-Jewish descent who wanted to become Jewish. And the reason that they needed to be baptized is because to be a Gentile was to be unclean. 
Therefore, you needed to be washed. Which is what made John's baptisms here so scandalous. Because interestingly enough, John was requiring both Jew and Gentile to be baptized. Now, what's he getting at by requiring baptisms for all? And this is where we get to see the the essence of this internal readiness. Look again at verse 7. John said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Clearly John is upset with this crop of baptizees that have showed up to be baptized. He calls them snakes. It's not a kind thing to say. And his critique is, verse 8, that they are not bearing the fruits of, of repentance, that their actions are not lining up with their hearts. He's accusing them of pursuing the right behavior but for the wrong reasons. That's why he calls them snakes. He's highlighting their desire to escape God's judgment but at the same time to keep living the way they've always lived. One commentator says it this way, he said, these people wanted to get out of danger but they still wanted to be snakes. How does John know that they don't mean it? How can he know that their request is not genuine? Look at verse 8. He says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. You see, these people, these primarily Jewish people, they came to get baptized, yet clearly, because of what they are saying, they don't believe on the inside that they really need to be baptized, that they really need to be made clean. Well, why? Well, because they believe that Abraham as their father is enough, that their, that their lineage in and of itself entitles them to God's blessing. Now, thank goodness we don't struggle with entitlement in this country. Amen? And John's big point here is that internal readiness is all about throwing off our entitlement and embracing our neediness. According to John, to be ready to meet Jesus on the inside is to recognize that you need to be saved, that you need to be cleansed, washed, and and made whole again. And, And so this begs the question for all of us, what is the entitlement in our life that needs to be leveled so that we can be ready to meet the King? Maybe you feel entitled because you are really religious, because you come to church every single week. You even streamed every single Sunday in the pandemic. You faithfully read your Bible and tithe and you serve on the weekends. Clearly, you don't need a baptism of repentance, right? Maybe you feel entitled to Jesus' blessings because you're so woke, because you not only care about the lives of the marginalized, but you actually do something about it. Clearly, you don't need to be cleansed like the rest of us. Maybe you feel entitled because you're so successful, because life is pretty good right now. Your bank account is flush, and you just got a promotion. You're you're feeling great. It's hard to believe that you need saving, right, when you are smothered in comfort. I mean, saved from what? From bliss? To be ready is to know that you haven't earned it, that you don't deserve it, but that you really need it. That you're dirty. And in order to get ready, you need to be washed clean. This posture of awareness of our brokenness, of our neediness of a Savior, the Bible calls this repentance. It's the one thing that is absolutely necessary for us to be ready to meet King Jesus. 
Church, do you have that? Do you have a deep awareness that apart from Christ's amazing grace, you simply cannot make it? And does that awareness cause you to repent often and from the heart? Because it, does it cause you to come to your heavenly Father heartbroken over your sin and desperate for his grace? To be ready on the inside is to grow more and more in living a life of repentance. Which brings us to our second point. What does external readiness look like? What's interesting is that after John not so subtly engages the hearts of the crowd, the crowd shifts the conversation from the heart to behavior. And the thing the crowd is most confused about is this phrase in verse 8 that John says. He says, the fruit of repentance. And the second half of our text is really John pressing in on what this is. What is the fruit of repentance? Sometime back in high school, I made the decision to walk away from my relationship with God And I began to explore happiness elsewhere. I spent four years on that journey, pursuing comfort and pleasure through every medium that I could get my hands on. However, by God's grace, towards the end of my junior year of college, I had what I would describe as a supernatural encounter with Jesus. Jesus met me where I was at, and he rocked my world. And What's interesting about that story as it relates to our text is that immediately after encountering Jesus, my behaviors began to change. I stopped consuming alcohol because I was underage. I stopped partaking in illegal substances. I stopped looking at inappropriate things on the internet. The way that I related to women changed. Countless other things. Don't get me wrong, these changes weren't all instantaneous. And to this day, I struggle in many of the ways that I struggled Back then, I fail often, but the point I'm trying to make is that nobody told me that since I had encountered Jesus, I needed to start living a different way. It just happened. When I encountered Jesus, my desires began to shift, sometimes dramatically, sometimes more subtly, but more and more over time. And the reason that this happened is that through my repentance, I experienced God's grace, his unmerited favor and that grace changed me it transformed me it has changed me and it is changing the way that I live my life I love how the apostle Paul describes this phenomenon in Titus chapter 2 he says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people then verse 12 Paul says that 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 what this grace that has appeared does to us it says Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. God's grace changes us. It it instructs us to live a different way. Paul says it differently in 2 Corinthians. He says the grace of God compels us. It, It thrusts us into a new way of living. This is why... Following the baptism of repentance, the crowd is so quick to ask the question, what then shall we do? How then shall we live in light of this grace that we have received? Now I want to look closely at how John answers that question. I think it's really important and often missed. The critique that I often hear of the Bible is that it's just a list of rules that ultimately takes all the fun out of life. 
It's all about don't do this, don't do that, which is why Christians are so boring. I don't know if you ever heard that. But look closely at our text. When the crowd asked John, what is the fruit of repentance? This is what he says. First, to the whole crowd, he says, verse 11, whoever has two tunics with him, share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And then he speaks very practically to two select groups of people that have come to this baptismal party, the tax collectors and the soldiers, both of whom are known for using their power and influence to take advantage of others. And his message to both of them is really simple. He says, do your job in such a way as to not hurt others. Isn't it interesting? When John is asked about the fruit of repentance, what our behavior should be, John doesn't say, don't drink, smoke, or chew, nor go with people that do. In fact, his answer isn't about us at all. His message has everything to do with how we treat others, particularly those who are most vulnerable. Which, if we understand repentance and grace, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because remember, to repent is to throw off entitlement and to acknowledge before God that I need his grace, although I clearly don't deserve it. And what happens when we receive that grace, that unmerited favor from God, is that we will always desire to offer that favor to others also. Since we already started with the Disney story, I'm going to stay in the Disney theme here. I really love the movie Raya the Dragon. It just came out. It's pretty awesome. And the reason I liked it so much is because, in my opinion, I think it's, it's laced with the gospel story. Uh, it, it so beautifully highlights the domino effect of love and grace. If, you, if you've seen the movie, then you'll follow. If you haven't, you'll probably not, mit, not understand this. But it's this, this story where this, the head dragons, the most influential dragons, they give up their lives to save the ungrateful, self-absorbed humans which then motivates Sisu, the the least impressive of all the dragons, to give up her life for her friend Raya, who then, spoiler alert, gives up her life for Namari, who had already stabbed Raya in the back twice. And it's the sacrificial act of Raya that transforms Namari into a whole new person who in turn saves the whole world. This is why we, ex- we say we exist for the glory of God in the good of Durham. Because as we, the church, experience God's grace in our lives, our repentance, it will always bear fruit. It will in turn benefit our city and the people who reside in it. That is the consequence of God's grace in our lives. As one commentator says it, the forgiven person is to become a forgiving person. The delivered person is to become a delivering person. As the Father has shown his goodwill to us, so we should show it to others. To play with Isaiah's metaphor one last time, when we encounter Jesus, the mountains of our pride are broken down. The valleys of our self-pity are raised up, which in turn motivates us to tear down the mountains of oppression and the valleys of injustice in this place that we call home. Here, I heard one. Thank you. Amen. I want to conclude by looking at verse 6 because in verse 6, that's where the hope is really encapsulated. 
What the prophecy declares, what the prophet says, is that when the mountains are made low and the valleys are filled, when our insides are marked by repentance and our outsides are marked by love and justice and mercy, the result is, verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When the grace of God transforms us from the inside out, the result is that Durham encounters Jesus through us. That's the point of Rosaria Butterfield's book. That, that, that's her story, that she was profoundly hostile to Jesus. And then she encountered Jesus through a pastor who kept having her over to dinner and listening to her and valuing her as a person and loving her no matter what. And the love ultimately resulted in Rosaria meeting Jesus. Our central, may we be like that pastor whose hearts are marked by genuine repentance and whose lives are marked by love and justice and mercy, who in turn regularly facilitate people encountering the living Christ in us. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that we sometimes, that we often take for granted. We lose sight of the amazing gift that you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. That he bled and died for us. That we didn't deserve it. That we're not entitled to it, but you have showered us with your grace. And Father, may your grace do its perfect work in us and transform us from the inside out so that as we engage with the people around us, as we engage with the brokenness in this city that we call home, that people in turn encounter you, the living God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.